right now is not being considered compensated work. We will reallocate our human precious resources to more meaningful work, freeing up more time to increase one-on-one -on -one education for uh, early childhood, as well as more personalized care for the growing aging demographic. Or just so working adults can have more time to spend with their children and their parents. We can invest in human capital and ready them for a new age of jobs that don't exist today and push our frontiers in technology, medicine, space, so on. So truly, we have a lot to look forward to when it comes to AI. But it's not without its challenges. We'll need to work together and think very deep and hard about the important questions. Should we continue to rely on work to distribute purchasing power? As soaring productivity allows society to provide all its people with everything we need at near zero cost, how do we share wealth and redistribute it? Should we change the way we think about jobs, our purpose, and how we define our lives? These are tough questions, and we'll need everyone's help here today to engage in discussions and present your ideas to steer the transformation, because the true story of AI is still being written. Thank you. Well done. Amazing. Thank you, Marilyn. That was fascinating. Okay, our next speaker is the CEO of Kite. And I just had a fascinating discussion with him backstage. So Joseph is a serial entrepreneur, a board member at Communitech, uh, currently the CEO of Kite. And Kite is the creator of the world's first intelligent sales coach. And he was just explaining to me backstage that Kite, the way it's spelled, is actually a Japanese word that means to listen. And so the whole company is based on the idea of listening to employees as a way to coach them. So it sounds absolutely fascinating. Please welcome Joseph Fung. Good luck. There we go. Good morning, everybody. So I love this quote here. This is the first generation where people will grow up and live and work amongst intelligent machines. And I know I'm excited about that future and what it holds for us, but it also includes some interesting cautionary thoughts and considerations that we have before us. So I invite you to join me on a journey to imagine what the future's like when we are working among the machines. So first imagine this. You pick up the phone to call up your favorite restaurant to order takeout again, except it's a new host on the line. He sounds smart, clear, and he already knows what your favorite order is. He knows that you typically order an extra portion just in case. He even knows that you have a dairy allergy. Your order's flawless, it goes smoothly, and as you wrap up and wait for your meal to be delivered, you think to yourself, that was a delightfully human experience. Or was it? We'll paint a different picture. If we think about the Caves of Steel, the Isaac Asimov book from 1953. It paints a picture of a world where robots, as they walk among humankind, are so indistinguishable from their human counterparts that they actually preface their names with the letter R so that you know who they are. R. John Doe. R. Daniel Oliva, as an example. R. Ian Klugman, perhaps. 
And at the time, this seemed like a great fantasy. It was so far-fetched, it didn't, couldn't possibly be real. But with the advent of technologies like Google Duplex, an assistant can actually call and make a reservation that's veritably indistinguishable from a human. This is actually frighteningly close. And if we think about the tools that we use on a day-to-day -day basis to make orders, buy food, we make a reservation on OpenTable, we order food from Uber Eats, from Skip the Dishes, it's not too far-fetched to imagine a scenario like I painted earlier, where all of those preferences and those online tools are turned into a conversational agent that's indistinguishable from a human. Now, if alarm bells aren't going off yet, let me paint a different picture. I'm sure many of you have seen the movie Red with Bruce Willis. Now, in this movie, Bruce Willis plays Frank, a retired agent. He's a deadly operative, but he's retired now. And he spends a lot of his time speaking on the phone to Sarah, who works in the federal pension office in Kansas City. And he's so lonely and longs for so much human connection that he actually makes up excuses to speak to her. He tears up his pension checks and calls her up to say they never arrived. And as they spend time talking, sharing banter, sharing anecdotes, they build a very real relationship. And plug your ears if you don't like spoilers. They fall madly in love. But imagine how this story would have ended if Sarah was actually an intelligent agent. She was a bot. I mean, aside from the heartache and the anger that Frank would have felt, he very likely would have felt betrayal. And these are very real, painful human emotions caused by technology. And so we need to ask ourselves, do the builders of technology have an obligation to let people know when they're interacting with a machine? And if so, how do they announce it? To make this very real and put this into context, already today, senior citizens, some of our most vulnerable populations, are the primary target of fraud delivered by internet and by phone. Now, if we add into the mix indistinguishably human voice assistants, what we have is actually a recipe for fraud by telephone at scale. The largest robocalling scandal that we've ever heard of is one that hasn't yet happened. Now, these ethical questions are profoundly important for all of us to consider. Yes, they're very important for technology companies to consider. We need to chart our course. We need to look at the broad trends to think about what AI technology is ripe to be turned into application. Uh, but we also need to think about what the impact is for us. How are we going to perform when our next coworker is actually an AI? Now, we see a lot of fear, a lot of commentary about how the workforce will be changing. There will be large changes in the makeup of the workforce. There's a lot of fears about employment. But when we think about the near-term horizon, what we're going to see next, we don't need to be nearly as worried about losing colleagues, as excited as we should be about gaining new abilities, new luxuries. Let's imagine these as robot butlers. So as we think about your day-to-day -day work, I'd like to paint a couple of pictures, imagine a couple of examples. Let's imagine if instead of booking meetings and asking the two or three people in your office, the two or three people from the other office when they're available, you had an assistant that could actually book it, resolve conflicts, move meetings around to find an optimal time. Or let's imagine that you're regularly scanning your inbox for emails coming in to craft new ones, because nobody here really spends a lot of time writing email. But instead, let's imagine you had an assistant that every night read your emails, crafted easy responses. And so when you came in the morning, you started your day in your outbox, 
to approve draft emails as opposed to spending your time in your inbox. Or maybe you're in an outside role and you incur a lot of expenses. Imagine you had a robot assistant that automatically scanned in the receipts, categorized them, made sure you had the right currency in there, that it met your policies, wrapped it into an expense report and submitted it for you. Or perhaps you're in more of an administrative role. You use the same assistant as earlier. Instead of crafting emails, it's crafting notes and messages for you in meetings so that you can focus on an action plan and then let the assistant follow up with your colleagues and peers to make sure those action plans are actually executed. Or even further, as you navigate a project, that assistant is watching and learning from what worked, what didn't, and listens to you as you talk about what's going well, what's enjoyable, what's working, and takes those two things, what you've enjoyed and which parts of the project have worked, to actually offer you career advice. Now, all of these things in the workplace feel like luxuries, but these are things that companies today are working on. The idea of a coach that helps make you more productive is one of the things that our team works on every single day. And so these tools and technologies are going to be very real in your workplace if you're not using them already in the very near future. And so to come back to my earlier comment, this is less about which roles are going to disappear and which people won't be my colleague next week. It's really more about how will I elevate my performance because if we can each choose the actions that are more effective and the ones that are more meaningful, we'll actually deliver a more human experience. All of the examples that I shared earlier are fairly routine work. We're processing text, we're processing calendars, we're following up on tasks. We kill way too much time doing that stuff. With all of these tools, we'll actually enable people to focus on interpersonal relationships. And so the workplace, the way you treat your customers, the way your vendors treat you, will be dramatically more human, and you'll have an opportunity to perform at a much higher level. Because when you get out of the weeds and you focus on allocating your scarce resources better, and you can focus on choosing your time, what we're talking about is actually allowing every employee to perform as an executive. And when the companies and those employees are better aligned, they're acting as more effective executives. Peter Drucker wrote the book on it. And he's the one who said that culture eats strategy. And what's remarkable about it is when we think about the components that really make someone an executive, you know, Peter Drucker didn't talk about titles, didn't talk about how large your organization was. He talked about the work that you did. He talked about how do you take flexible time and allocate that most appropriately. He talked about the idea of choosing who can contribute to which project or which department can contribute to which project. He talked about mobilizing your own strengths, your team's strengths, the idea of taking information from other parts of the organization, executing decisions and then sharing it. In effect, that's what we'll all have the opportunity to do. And so for each of us, we have some very interesting questions to ask ourselves as well. You know, we need to ask ourselves, what does it actually look like when our next coworker is an AI? So to put it in context, it may, it may actually feel very much like driving down the road and then suddenly realizing, hey, that car in the lane beside you is an autonomous vehicle. How are you going to react? Are you going to be worried? Is that car going to stay in its lane? Are you going to be thoughtful? How does that actually work? Are you going to be intrigued? Man, I really want one of those cars. In the workplace, it's going to be very similar. We'll have the same concerns. Should I really ask that assistant this question? Can they do it as well as a human? Are my colleagues going to be offended that I asked an assistant instead of them? These are all very meaningful questions that we need to ask ourselves. 
And as much as there may be concerns and there may be trepidation, it's in our nature to trust the tools we have. As much as we might be fearful of an autonomous vehicle in a lane beside us, we all trust our GPS to get us here, even if we haven't had the opportunity to see this wonderful facility. We trust adaptive cruise control to keep a distance between us and the next car or lane assist to keep ourselves in our lane. And so as these tools become available in the workplace, people will trust them and they'll push the boundaries. And it's not just in the workplace, it's already happening in the home. We already have robots that clean our floors and we trust them to do regularly and they buzz our phones when they get stuck. There are tools, AI-driven cribs, that can rock our babies to sleep to make sure that they don't wake up in the middle of the night. And if we're leveraging these tools to be happier at home, why can't we leverage the same type of technologies in the workplace to be more productive and more engaged? And this is what's so exciting about the future. Now, we talk about these as anecdotes. What happens when there's an AI working alongside you? And we talk about how very real, very true, in every boardroom, they're having these conversations. What does this actually mean to businesses? What does this actually mean on a day-to-day -day basis? We, we see industry trends, uh, like the number of traders hasn't dropped precipitously, but the number of trades happening in stock markets has skyrocketed, while traders are less about executing individual transactions and more about tuning algorithms and models to try and move more effectively. And so, yes, our productivity, our work will advance at a terrifying rate, and there will still be a lot of judgment that we need to execute. But to come back to specifics, what are some of the numbers? The Deloitte Global Human Capital Trends Report. Over the last year, between the last two reports, over 40% of companies 41% of the companies surveyed had already executed or were in the middle of executing an AI-driven or a cognitive computing project, putting it live right now. And when they forecast out to 2020, over 80% projected that they'd have environments and tools live in production. Now, this is coming extremely quickly. We are all going to see these. But the last stat is, I think, the most fascinating and telling one of those companies it was only 14% that actually had a plan in place or knew what they were going to do when they had humans, machines, and AI working alongside each other. And when you put these together and you realize that that difference, that low level of readiness was the lowest readiness measure that Deloitte had seen in the last five years, you realize there's a huge chasm, a difference between how fast we're implementing these technologies and how prepared companies are. And this preparation you know, extends all the way up to the board and the C-level office, all the way down to frontline employees. And so my, my ask for everybody here is to think about what's that going to be like when you have an AI, when you have a machine that's one of your colleagues and that you're working with. And no, it's not going to come in the, the vein of replacing Jim or replacing Susan. It's gonna come in the form of you suddenly have new capabilities and new tools that you're interacting with. How are you going to do your job better? And what are some of the technologies that you might leverage? So what are some of these things that we spoke about that companies are building right now? I mentioned Kite. We build a coach, an assistant that helps sales reps and service reps deliver instant expertise so they can delight their clients. It's kind of like having a sales assistant just for you. 
We look at more companies. We could take a look at Salesloft and Nudge. They have a fantastic partnership so that when you, as a sales rep, are preparing content or writing a message, it'll actually do the legwork to go and research, find information, so that you can tailor your content, your message, your offering to those individualized customers. It's kind of like having your own research assistant in your pocket. Or even closer to home, fantastic example, Shopify. We already know that they use data and machine learning to optimize product offerings on their customers' stores. They use it in their own theme marketplace to help suggest to small businesses and merchants what's the best design and theme to help their online store be productive. But they also bought a company a couple years ago called Kit, which actually takes a look at the purchases happening on an individual store, the characteristics of the visitors to the site, the marketing campaigns that have worked for others, and will actually suggest that, hey, maybe you should take this product and put it on sale on Facebook to drive your sales. Do you want to do that? And when you click yes, it takes care of the 100 clicks to actually go and do that. It's like giving every small business a marketing assistant. And now if you can imagine the benefit of these technologies, this isn't just a Fortune 500 disruption. Large organizations often have people that are working on these already. The real exciting disruption is in the small business, the SMB space, where normally you could never afford to have this type of help in your organization, but now you will on a more fractional basis for every single role for every employee. Which brings us again back to that interesting question. When you're offering a technology to your customers or to your employees or to a colleague, do you have an obligation to let them know that they're interacting with a human? The world's not always going to be as cut and dry as this when you know it's a robot you're working with. The reality is sometimes you're going to have an expense report that gets automatically approved, and yeah, that'll be from an AI. Or you'll have a marketing campaign suggested to you, and yeah, that came from an AI. Or you're going to need some help to answer a difficult question while you're helping a customer, and yes, that came from an AI. But we're all pushing boundaries. And what's important is all of these technologies are in market today. And so if you can push yourself out of your comfort zone to leverage these in your own role, you're not only future-proofing your own role, but you're helping your company gain an advantage in the marketplace. The key thing, though, is keeping in mind that there are very real, very hard, ethical questions that we need to ask ourselves. What's the impact on my colleagues? What are the expectations? And unfortunately, how can these be misused? Fundamentally, it comes down to trust. And we need to think about how we can engender and build and foster trust in the way we interact with our colleagues today to build up that asset to build up that pool ahead of rolling out technologies. And so, as we think about what our work will be like, when we're acting more as an executive every single day, I'd like to leave you with one last quote and one more question. So Peter Drucker, again, spoke about the best way to predict the future is to create it. And we're in the middle of that today. When we think about the future of work and working among machines, and we ask ourselves, what's that going to look like? The reality is the onus is on us to create that and to make sure it's a safe and an effective and a very productive environment. And that's what we're all working on. So as you leave here today and as you listen to all of the other fantastic speakers, I ask you to consider two things. One, how can you leverage these technologies to move your organization forward? But even more importantly, how can you leverage these technologies so that your company and your organization is doing 
more good with all of this technology. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a fantastic day. Joseph, thanks. Thanks so much. That was amazing. Very, very interesting. Are you guys enjoying this? So I absolutely love that it's standing room only in here. Just take a moment to look around. It's standing room only. I was, I was reflecting on a funny conversation I had with Ian Klugman, the CEO of Communitech, about a year ago, where he was first sharing the idea for this conference, and he said, you know, I'm thinking about getting a couple people together in Waterloo next year. <laughs> so it's nice to meet Ian's couple friends. Um, so, uh, so thank you, and that was, that was great. And I'd like to move on to the next, uh, next segment now. So our next speaker is doing something extremely cool. She's working on creating ultra-human-like robots. And I was just speaking to her backstage, and I was asking her, why would you want to create ultra-human-like robots? And she gave me a very interesting answer that she's going to speak to you about. But incredibly interesting and cool, she's essentially the CEO and founder of Sanctuary AI, and I'd like to introduce Suzanne Gildert. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Suzanne. Uh, I'm the founder of a really interesting company called Sanctuary AI. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is something maybe a little bit different than what the other things you've been hearing at this conference. I'm going to talk about something that's a little more uh, future-looking. But first, I want to tell you a story. So I've been building robots for a long time. And I have a little robot on my desk. It's a really simple robot. It's basically just a webcam with a single motor, and it can like kind of look around, and it can learn about the things that it's seeing in its environment. So that's pretty cute, like cute little robots. And recently, I was programming this robot to do some interesting things. I was actually programming it to learn about what it was seeing using some of the new machine learning algorithms. And one of the things it was learn learning to do was play the video game Pong. So I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember playing this video game. But this robot, so it has its little webcam that's looking at the screen, and it has a tiny little um, lever that it moves around to play the video game. And it was so cute, like learning to play Pong. It's like watching a child learning to play for the first time. And that was really awesome. And usually they don't learn very well using these algorithms. But this, this one particular time, the robot actually learned to play the game really well. And I was so proud of it. I kind of felt you know, a very visceral reaction to this cute little robot having learned the thing. And then the problem was, after the experiment had finished, I had to wipe that's robot's brain. So that file I'd created, the experiment had been done. It was over. I didn't need that, that result anymore. I had the result. So I had to delete what we call the mind file. And this is the first time I ever had a kind of like a reaction to doing something in AI that really made me start thinking about the social consequences and some of the ethical questions that might arise when we are developing uh, advanced AI. So that's kind of cute. You might be thinking, OK, this is a sci-fi nerd, obviously. I love sci-fi. And she thinks that this little robot she's made is alive. That's kind of cute, but you know, I don't buy it. Well, the little robots we're building now, that might be true. But in the future, I think all of us are going to be asking some of these questions. 
So labs all over the world are creating increasingly human-like robots. It's not just at Sanctuary that we're doing this. There are many, many people everywhere working on this, and this is something that's going to happen. And I'm going to argue it's going to happen sooner than we think. I think within a couple of decades, we're going to have human-like robots walking amongst us. You may not even be able to tell that they're robots. So what kind of things do we need to create human-like robots? Isn't this some crazy sci-fi mission that's going to take 100 years? I don't think so. I'm going to argue there's only three things we need to build these systems. One is a human-like body, hardware system, a robot. The second thing is a human-like mind, essentially an AI system. And the third thing, which is really interesting, is a way to put human-like values into these systems that we're building. There have been many advances recently in all three of these areas. Hardware is advancing very, very fast. People think robots are these clunky mechanical things that don't follow Moore's law. Well, there have been some recent advancements in things like 3D printing that allow small companies like us to create robotic parts within a day that can now go into adult human-sized robots. Just an example of this, we basically uh, recently got some new 3D printers that are able to print continuous carbon fiber. So prior to this, you'd have to go to, uh, go to outsource to a workshop that had complex CNC machines to machine large pieces of aluminum. It was very expensive. It was very complicated to design for CNC manufacture. What we can do now is design a part for a humanoid robot and print it on one of these printers in a day, and it's strong enough to withstand all the forces that you'd, currently, that you'd previously have to use metal components for. Oh, and by the way, it's 20% lighter as well. It's like human bone. So hardware is getting there fast. Sensors are getting better all the time. Some of you have probably seen recent videos from companies like Boston Dynamics showing humanoid robots able to run, walk, do backflips, pick up things, even react in a very kind of a emotionally interesting way when people kick them and knock them over. So we're getting there with the bodies. The minds is another deal entirely but those are also improving. With recent improvements in GPUs and algorithms research, we're now starting to be able to get things that are becoming more and more and more human-like in, in the way that they're thinking. So there are various different components to AI, like you may have heard of deep learning. It's been quite a buzzword recently. Deep learning is the way that we can take data from all these robot sensors all the um, motors and actuation systems on its body, all that data we can feed it into a deep learning network and actually learn representations of that data that are similar to the representations that humans learn. So every time I hold an object, I'm moving my fingers over an object, and all the little uh, information, the data that's coming from my sensory nervous system is going into my brain, and my brain is creating an understanding of that object as a thing in the world. We can now do that with neural nets. So very soon, we're going to have 
minds that are becoming increasingly human-like. There are some advances that people are doing now where we're trying to connect symbolic AI, which is what's known as good old-fashioned AI. It's the kind of AI that was being done back in the 50s. People have kind of abandoned that for a while. But now people are looking at how to bring back symbolic AI, merge it with the neural nets and deep learning to create something that works much more similar to the human mind. Another thing we can do is use teleoperation systems. Uh, so at my previous company, I worked quite a lot on this technology. We built teleoperation systems for robots that allow a human to wear some kind of exosuit technology where they can take control of the robot, they can see everything it sees and hear everything it hears, and they can act accordingly as though their consciousness has been transplanted into the robot. So that's cool, and you can do a lot of fun things with that. But what it really means is that an AI can be sat there in the background learning from all that data. So you can actually fast track the learning of AI systems to become more human-like by putting a human in the loop. How does it all work? We call this process pre-training. So a human teleoperates a robot while an AI learns in the background. And the AI model learns to try and attempt to control the robot while it's still in its early phases. So what this basically means is if you just take a pure, untrained AI and put it in control of a large robot, you have a terrible outcome because the robot smashes things and it damages itself and it destroys itself. But what happens is if you put a human in the loop first to, to train the robot using something called imitation learning, the AI can, can look at what the human would have done in that situation and learn to get better before you give it the steering wheel, so to speak. One last thing I didn't quite talk about yet is how do we get those values in there? So in this pre-training model, all the AI is trying to do is copy the human. So it can only ever learn to do things in the style of the human. But when you take the human out of the loop, how does the AI then know what to do? How does it advance its mind into the future? How does it become smarter on its own? And you can do that by putting something called a reward function into the mind. So we craft a reward function to be very similar to the human reward function by essentially copying something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So the very basic level, we have physical needs, like the need for our body to be safe and secure, the need for all our sensors to be intact. And you can actually detect when something's gone wrong with a sensor, and the robot or the AI mind will interpret this as a pain signal. You can do similar things with more um, higher, more abstract levels of the reward function, like the robot gets a pleasure signal when it sees a human face. Maybe if it knows that human face, it gets more of a pleasure signal, or maybe not, depending on what the human did to it previously. Uh, and then you can even reward the robot for doing things like learning new things, um, you know, exhibiting curiosity, and things like that. So you can build up a very complex set of um, motivations for a robot that allows the AI mind to go out there in the world, and now it has its own desires and its own wants. It's not just copying what a human showed it anymore. So what happens when we put all these things together and we take this process to its, to its limit, to its extreme? You end up with something that's very human-like, that thinks like a human, that feels like a human, and 
sometime in the future will be indistinguishable from a human. So in my lab, we call these things synths, synthetic humans, and the plan is to try and make them indistinguishable from biological humans and to have them living amongst us as part of our society. We want these creatures, these new types of being, to be in a symbiotic ecosystem alongside humans. I think this is going to be one of the biggest changes we've ever seen in our civilization. And I think even if you don't agree with me that this is going to happen, and even if you don't agree with me on when it's going to happen, I think everyone is going to agree that this is going to be a hugely disruptive change. I don't think we're ready for the impact of something like this. There's going to be so many economic and political impacts of creating beings that are like us. Even just the teleoperation technology I talked about. So take away all the AI for a minute. Just think about humans teleoperating robots in remote locations. What does that mean for the future of work? Right? What does that mean when a human is able to work in a remote country as a robot? Where are they paying taxes? Where are they as a, as a citizen if they are walking around as a robot in a different country? So there are all these kind of weird, interesting implications that this technology has. And that's not even mentioning the economic implications of having human-like robots that can do any human work. So what's going to happen to jobs in the future? It's something we need to start thinking about. There's also going to be psychological impacts of having this kind of technology. So one of the things we're very used to as humans is being kind of at the top of the food chain. We think of ourselves very egocentrically, perhaps, as being very smart, the most intelligent species. We've built all this amazing civilization. We've built you know, great societies, discovered amazing scientific um, facts. What if there's a species that's more intelligent than we are? How's that going to make us feel? Are we going to feel oppressed? Or are we going to embrace it and say, hey, I don't mind if there's 10,000 more Einsteins in the world. That's going to be a great thing for humanity. Another implication that I want to briefly mention gets even closer to home. If anyone's squeamish. If human robots look like us and they have body systems that are very similar to ours, yet they have cool AI minds in the cloud, might we be able to merge with them physically? Might we be able to use some of that human-like robotic technology to enhance our own biological bodies? In the future, there might not be humans and robots. There might be a third type of being a sort of cyborg, a hybrid. These might sound like science fiction ideas, but this ton of technology enables these things. We're going to see it slowly happening. When a prosthetic limb suddenly gets better at everything than a human arm, would someone choose to have that instead? OK. So far, I've talked about the impact that AI and robotics is going to have on humanity. But I also want to think about the impact we might have on them. So I told you the story of the little robot on my desk called Hydraulica. And what happened when I had to uh, wipe her tiny, nascent mind out of existence. 
And that was a really simple, straightforward robot that you know, didn't really do very much. What's going to happen when these beings are fully human-like and fully sentient, and we also have the capability to just delete their mind without thinking about it? That's going to be something that's possible, and it's going to be something I argue will be very bad for these robots, and we need to really start thinking about how to deal with situations like this. Even now, even when we're doing AI research now, we should start thinking. Every time we sit there about to press that delete button, that should give you a really uneasy feeling. I mentioned this thing about reward, reward functions and reward signals. So we're programming in pleasure and pain into the robot at its very core. Its very being, everything it chooses to do in the world is based on these reward functions that we put in there. But being good scientists as we are, in order to test these reward functions, we have to put the robot in pain. We have to essentially torture the robot to check that these systems are working correctly. Now, that's OK at the moment, because the robots are really simple. The AI minds are nowhere near human-like in their sentience, if you believe they have any at all. But as these things progress further and further, where do we draw the line? When does this become the same as something like experiments on animals? When do we just outlaw it completely because these things are starting to become too human-like to run these experiments anymore? Another thing we need to worry about with ethics, as applied to the AI beings themselves, is thinking about their identities. So we're all very... I guess, blessed in a way, to have a single physical body, a single mind, a brain, and not have to worry about where your mind is at the moment. And I don't just mean whether or not you're listening to me or your mind is like wandering off somewhere. I mean, physically, where is your mind stored, right? It's in your brain. But for these entities, that's not the case. The mind could be anywhere. It could be on the cloud. It could be local to the robot. It could be on a researcher's desktop machine. The problem with having minds that are fluid in this way and can be stored anywhere and morphed and changed is that they can be hacked. Okay? They can be cloned. So imagine that. Imagine if one day you woke up and you, know, you got a call saying you robbed a bank last night and you were like, what? No, I didn't do that. And it turns out someone had made a mind clone of you that had then gone and done something on your behalf. So there are all these problems with, with minds being able to be changed, moved, copied, stored, deleted, that we just don't even encounter at the moment because we're, we're locked into this way of thinking about our own biological nature. So I argue that we need to start thinking, maybe not doing quite yet, but just thinking about some of these things that might crop up when these ultra-human-like robots and other kind of AI beings start to come into existence and start to prove to us through Turing tests or other means that they really are sentient, self-aware, they really have subjective experiences, and they really need the same kind of rights that we have. I didn't want to end on a negative note, <laughs> so what I want to do uh, is just give you some thoughts as to why these kind of beings might be good for our society in the future. 
So you're probably all kind of a little scared at the moment, you know. We're going to have crazy AI robots that are super intelligent taking over everything, and other minds are going to be getting hacked, and we won't know what to do, and maybe they're like merging with us physically, and I'm really like terrified right now. So here are some ideas for why these beings can help us as humans. So one cool thing about robots is you can uh, do something that we call putting them in fleet mode. And basically what fleet mode means is that you have several robots of the same form. So imagine they're humanoids, but they could be anything. And they're sort of sharing one mind. So if any of you are Star Trek fans out there, you'll be aware of the Borg, which is kind of a similar idea to this, where there are many, many bodies and they all share a single mind. We can do that with robots. And what that means is when one robot learns something, it can then immediately share those learnings with all the other robots in the fleet. So just imagine the implications for something like in education for this. You could have robots teaching people, and when a robot learns how a particular individual understands something, that could be transferred across the entire fleet. So you'd have all these robots out there going, oh, I suddenly understand something a little bit more about how to educate people, because my, my hive mind has now educated a million people. So I, I really know how this thing works. So the, the potential for having these things be teachers, uh, be working in healthcare, where they've looked at millions and millions of medical records and not just hundreds or thousands like a regular doctor, the, 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 it's just immense. Uh, these beings could also issue in a world of abundance, which I'm kind of excited about myself. By that I mean don't be scared about the jobs going away, because if the cost of everything goes to zero, then we'll be in a world of abundance, so we can talk about that later. I already mentioned this idea of transcending biology. Maybe we could merge with these machines and actually become something different in the future. That scares a lot of people, but I'm actually excited about it. You know, why do we age? Why do we have all these horrible diseases that we can't cure? Maybe we could use some of this technology to get around some of those problems. And I just wanted to finish with one of the things that personally excites me the most. So I used to be a physicist. And doing physics is really, really hard for the human mind. I know this, that's why I left the field. My monkey meat brain couldn't, you know, couldn't do it. So I worked in AI instead. What we're trying to build now is creatures that'll be able to have minds of a kind we couldn't even understand. They'll be able to think in 10 dimensions. They'll be able to invent new things that we could never even dream of. So imagine in the future these beings becoming super scientists, making advancements in physics and chemistry and biology, inventing things like warp drives and time travel. That's the kind of thing that gets me excited and makes me get up in the morning and work on this. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks. Suzanne, that was incredible. Thank you so much. What a fascinating presentation. So listen, we've got a great uh, segment right now, with, which is another 10 minutes with Suzanne, and we're going to ask her questions. So in a second, yep, there we go. We've got uh, a URL for everyone to uh, log into Slido and ask questions. And uh, I would love to get a ton of questions. You can also upvote them. So I want to choose the most popular questions. And we'll spend about 10 minutes uh, with Suzanne, and I want to explore some of the amazing topics she's talked about. 
So I'm going to take the liberty of asking you the first question. Okay. This is one that I was sort of thinking about while you were talking. Um, you talked about a day when there could be a robot that is basically indistinguishable from a human. That's right. My question is, how far away is that? Are we talking two years? Are we talking 10 years? To dimension it for us. Yeah. And I understand it's a hard question, but roughly. It's a very hard question because things don't really take amounts of time. It really depends on how much resources you put behind something, whether or not governments are cooperative in terms of regulating, and whether or not it's a project that really kind of captures researchers' minds so that it's something they want to work towards. So, so on current course and speed, let's say. I think on current course and speed, I think within 15 years, we're going to have to start asking some of these questions. I don't think the, they'll be fully, fully like we are by then, but I think the first kind of sparks of life will have been seen, and we'll, start, we'll be starting to think, mm, you know, maybe there's something here that we didn't think about before. Okay, fascinating. Um, one more question, then we're going to turn to the audience's questions. Uh, I'd like to ask, you talked about sort of a, a potential of a, a general AI, a super intelligent general AI that might also have rights, <laughs> which, which seems like it could be a dangerous road to go down. And I just, right. I just want to ask you very specifically, what does the human race need to do today, sort of now, before that future might happen, to make sure that that doesn't go badly? If there were two or three things that we need to make sure, is it the values that you're speaking about? Is that the key piece? Wow, that's a big question. So one of the reasons I'm working on human-like AI is because I think when the, when the idea that these things need rights starts to emerge, it'll be clear that they are similar to us. So the kind of rights that they need will be similar to human rights. So in a way, I think human-like robots are going to be the easy case. So if they are truly human-like, like in a show like Westworld, this is what the, the the questions that shows like that ask is, would you really treat them like that? And the obvious answer is no. You'd probably give them some or all of the same rights we have and, some of, and the responsibilities too. So these things can't just sit around and you know, be sentient and awesome. They have to kind of do things for our civilizations. They have responsibilities too. But the case that's more worrying is AIs that we don't understand, that are sort of more alien, um, more unusual in the way their minds work. I have no idea what rights for those kind of systems would look like. I think it's something we need to think about. Very interesting. Okay, turning to the audience's questions, I had a few people over on the side ask me this, and I can see it here as a theme in, in what's coming through on Slido. A lot of people are asking this basic question, why is it important that humans or robots look like humans? Yep. Why, why, why are you pursuing that? So this is like the number one question I always get asked. Um, there, are, there are many reasons. The primary reason is the one I just mentioned, which is I think if they, have, uh, if they look like us and they have similar minds and similar value systems, we'll be able to empathize with them. We'll be able to understand a little bit more about how they work. And uh, that will allow us to understand AI minds uh, in a more um, intuitive way, I think. So having something that thinks like a human is cool because you can immediately intuit a lot of things about that system's motivations and its reasoning and why it made certain decisions. So that's the main one. But I think also having these things integrate into our society, if they look like humans, I think it'll be easier. So maybe a lot of people here are techies and they wouldn't mind very robotic looking robots in the home, but there are a lot of people that don't like that at all. They don't like computers and kind of tech and stuff like that. They want something with a human look and feel that they can really communicate with. And then I'd say, I think the, um, 
The third reason, which is maybe more minor, but it's still important, there's a lot of infrastructure around us in our society and civilization that's been made for humans. So you can do things like build self-driving cars where you can take out the steering wheel and take out all the human interface, and, but that's like, you know, takes billions and billions of dollars to change all that infrastructure. Even things like traffic lights, right? Yeah, that's very Just interesting. Rip them out. So if you can make human-like robots, those things can immediately go out there into the workforce, do things um, in our society, and we don't need to really change a lot of the infrastructure. So I see it as being maybe a cool transition period between you know, AI automating everything and where we are today, where there's a lot of things like door handles <laughs> that are obviously designed for human bodies. Right. Very interesting. So let me pick up with a follow-up question then, because, and I think this is very interesting, whoever asked this. Um, so let's talk about what the human robots actually would look like. And, and this person is making the interesting point that entertainment has skewed our perception right, of what people should look like. There's a lot of beautiful white people on TV, <laughs> yeah. uh, is, what, is what the person asks. So how do you think about you know, issues of discrimination and perception when you create robots? Yep. It's a fascinating yeah. question. So the, the robot I showed up there is sort of a Caucasian female robot, but we're actually building like quite a few different robots of different um, races, different genders, um, things like that. And so I'm, I'm actually really excited about there being um, like a really diverse range of robots in the future, just like there are with people. I think a lot of it's going to come from uh, the kind of people that are driving this. So this may be a little bit of a kind of way of getting out of the question. Um, but I think the more diversity we have in tech and in AI and robotics, the more that will be reflected. And is that something actually you're thinking like. about in your company day to day, this question? Yeah, I mean, we have like over 50% of our staff are female, including all the engineers and scientists. So it's, yeah, I, tr I, I definitely try and hire a diverse team. Um, and I think, I think, you know, it's just important to have diversity. Awesome. Okay, next question uh, is about actually building the incredible products that you're, you're talking about. So the few people are interested in understanding what's the tough part? Is it the AI system itself? Is it the hardware? Is it the sensors? Yep. What's, what's, what's the limiting factor, perhaps? That's all I'll, I'll I ask. think the hard part is, at the moment, is the AI. So the, the bodies are, to me, in my mind, just an engineering problem now. It's like they need to get better. They're obviously, a lot of them are still uncanny valley, like they kind of creep people out. But I think that's something that's just going to get better and better over time. There's no fundamental problems there. With the bodies, we also just do, need to do things like make batteries smaller, lighter, more energy dense, but car industry is kind of solving that one for us. So I think all these kind of hardware problems have solutions. Some of the problems in the AI are more difficult. So this idea I was talking about, about combining like neural nets with more of the symbolic, logic-based AI systems, that's an unsolved research problem. And there are about, I'd say maybe four or five of these big unsolved research problems in this field called artificial general intelligence that people are only just starting to talk about. So there's loads and loads of cool research going on in AI, but it's all like siloed in these individual algorithms. What you need to do to build a true mind is to put all those pieces together. And it's when you start trying to get them to work together, that's where you hit the big problems. Yeah. Amazing. Part, part. Okay, so just two minutes left. I want to ask one last question. And given that part of our theme is tech for good, right? I think yeah. this is, this is a, an important question that is really on the minds of a lot of folks here. And, and I think you know, a lot of folks in, the, in this space are talking about it. 
which is the weaponization of AI. And, and you touched on it in a few of your comments, mm -hmm. uh, recognizing it's a difficult question. How can society avoid what some people could see as inevitable, that there, you could have things like robot armies, mm -hmm. potentially that are autonomous, right? And a future that looks like that. How, yeah. how do we prevent that from happening? I think technology has always been a double-edged sword. It's always provided us with awesome new opportunities, like the ones I mentioned, and it's also given us new ways of killing each other and like harming each other like we've always done. I think um, we really need to, to look at this as just another advancement, and I think we need to get more you know, policy makers and um, decision makers and, and, and governments on all scales to start really taking this stuff seriously. Um, I think that's sort of one thing, so just education, having people be aware of what's happening. I'm actually in favor of some regulation in this area, not like, not a lot like we did in some fields of biology where we just, you know, stopped, right. stopped like don't do it. And that's, that's just, I think, too cautionary. I think this is great technology. It could be awesome at solving some of the big problems we have as, as a species. Like we can't solve things like climate change. Maybe new kind of minds that can communicate instantaneously between other minds in all these different countries might come up with a better global solution. But so, fundamentally, you're an optimist. Fundamentally, I'm very much an optimist. And if I was to you know, say, how can we ensure that this doesn't go wrong in the future, I think you know, don't, don't over-regulate. Keep in mind that there are really cool benefits and advantages. And I think countries that recognize that will be able to get ahead and kind of own this new technology. And they'll be, they'll be superpowers if they do it and do it carefully. Incredible. Suzanne, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, amazing presentation and really fascinating, interesting answers, and I hope you'll take the time to meet Suzanne after and, and continue the dialogue. So we're going to move on now uh, in, our, uh, in our slate of speakers. Our next speaker works at the leading edge of customer experience and has been involved in some amazing companies and brands, retail platforms, uh, both in brick-and-mortar type applications and also in sort of more advanced e-commerce settings. Uh, Ali Asari is the founder and former CEO of Well.ca. He's also the founder and current CEO of Tulip Retail. But by far the coolest fact that's on my sheet here is that he actually created, I can't believe this, the popular Blackberry game Brick Breaker, which is like totally incredible. So uh, please welcome Ali Asaria. Hello, everybody. Um, I, I always get introduced with the Brick Breaker story, so you maybe you want to know a little bit about it. The funny thing is now when people introduce me with it, I can tell what age people are, because if, if you're younger, you have no idea what Brick Breaker is. Um, I, I was so proud when I made Brick Breaker. It actually was stolen from me by RIM, so I made it on my own time as a co-op student. And then one day I got a call from RIM Legal while I was at school, and they said, you built that on like work computers, right? And I was like, I don't, oh shoot. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden it was on 150 million Blackberries. I, I was so proud of myself. There was articles about Obama playing it and being addicted to it. I remember Googling it, like, it's like Googling myself, but I was Googling Brick Breaker, and I made it to Urban Dictionary. And Brick Breaker is actually a word in the Urban Dictionary, but if you look it up, it's actually, the definition of it is actually to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, I think the actual phrase in Urban Dictionary is like, I had really bad Mexican food last night. I was playing Brick Breaker all day. <laughs> okay, so anyway. Um, uh, 
so I, I work at a company called Tulip, um, and uh, what, what Tulip does is we work, actually we're partners with Apple, we work with very large retailers and basically large enterprise companies that have large frontline workers, like large frontline staff, and they're all trying to understand how they adapt those workers in this kind of next generation economy, right? And so there's a whole bunch of things I learned as I built out Tulip. One of them is that retail workers is actually the largest job by headcount in North America. And so a lot of my time is spent talking to leaders of large companies, thinking about how these massive job and workforces will be reinvented as automation, e-commerce, and robotics kind of disrupt the workforce. And so I want to pick up a lot on, on, on the last talk, but really focus on this idea of what does the future of work look like in a post-automation, post-AI world? To start, I mean, we have to think about what work means, if we're going to talk about what the future of work means. And I think one of the mistakes that we often all make is that we think of work as that which we do to get paid. But it's actually sort of the inverse, right? We should think of work as a priori. And currency is only just really defined as a way to exchange labor. And so when we think of work, I'm suggesting that we should think of work as that which we do and that which we value in each other. And so it's really, how do I value myself and how do I value other people? That's what I do as my job. And that ends up being, in a value-based um, society, our placeholder in, in our world. And so the future of jobs is a lot about the future of what we value in each other and, and how we hold ourselves in, in, in the future of society. And so we think of like these three mega trends, right? The first is automation. That's what we're living in right now. The second trend being kind of robotics, and the third trend being AI. I kind of wanted to build a model and work with you on the future of what those technologies look like over time and how human jobs will transform in, in those different periods, right? We're really living in, in this model in phase zero, which is this idea that automation is disrupting massive workforces. Let's look at like what those numbers look like. So this is. Um, a slide from McKinsey, it's showing that over the next 30 years, they predict 375 million jobs will be disrupted and basically erased through automation. That's a massive, massive number. There is precedence for this, though. If you look in 18, like if you look at this graph, actually, it's showing that from 1850 to 2015, here's the makeup of jobs in US society. That massive light blue chunk that's shrinking in a really rapid way, that's, that's people who work on farms. And so if you look at agriculture, it basically shrunk by 55% over that kind of um, 1850 to 2015 period. This is actually the same graph. It's just another view of that. This is service, um, service jobs versus goods producing jobs. The, the highlight of this, this is actually another, I'll show you another view of that same graph. The highlight of this graph is that when all those jobs disappeared, it wasn't that a whole bunch of, like, everybody became unemployed. What happened is new jobs replaced them in, in their place. And so what happens is we have all these independent coffee shops in a time when before everyone would have been working in a farm. What we see with jobs is that as we remove this like, manual labor from a as a job category, we start finding new ways to value each other and, and the new, new jobs take their place. And that, in, in the past, that's been in the service industry. But the disruption that we're seeing now through automation is going to happen in a much tighter time frame. My talk's not going to talk about what happens at the micro level. At the micro level, a whole bunch of people are going to get unemployed, and it's going to be horrible. People will lose their jobs, and it's, it's going to be very difficult. At the macro level, though, there's actually sort of a positive story. And you may have heard me talk about this before, so I'm going to zoom through this a little bit. But the, the, the theme being that jobs actually don't go away. You'll hear people in this, like in this AI community talk about a post-job economy. And I'm saying that's, that's a misnomer, and you shouldn't really say that, because when you say post-job, you're saying post-valuing each other, and I, I don't think I want to I don't, I don't believe that's where our society is going. But we have to believe that the way we value each other will change, 
as manual routine tasks get erased from, from what we need to get from each other, and then we start emphasizing the more human, creative, and cognitive aspects of humanity. But society has to keep moving. And so in this kind of phase, the second phase of like AI, which, which I'm, I'm describing as directed AI, think of examples like what we're seeing right now where you can really direct AI at a specific problem. Say, look at all of these radiology scans and tell me if this person has cancer, but they're really focusing on a very specific problem. In that world, we're not just disrupting manual labor, we're actually disrupting a lot of the creative and like think of medical tasks and cognitive tasks that humans have. And so what you'll see in this pattern of the future of jobs and the future of AI is that the robot keeps taking away from us one thing that we used to love doing and value in each other, and we have to replace that with another thing. But it's sort of positive because the original things that the robots are taking away from us are kind of menial. They're repetitive, they're non-cognitive. And so now all of a sudden, in the past, farmers and retail workers were disrupted, but all of a sudden now doctors are disrupted. In this first phase, though, it's still positive, right? You still need the doctor to empathize with the patient. And so the doctor is now using the tool and saying to the robot, look, you've seen every single scan that's ever happened in the history of humanity. I maybe only have seen 100,000. I'm going to trust the robot to tell me if this person has cancer, but then I'm going to translate what the robot is saying to the patient because I still need to have empathy and care. And so these jobs kind of transform, and even jobs like software developers and doctors will start to have a big se section of automation and robotics and AI in them, but still, this job still exists. We start like, emphasizing empathy, creativity, and, and personality and relationships. And so this is, in the past, if you've heard me talk, this is really where I usually end, right? The idea that it's actually sort of positive as automation and directed AI replace those parts of our jobs which are menial and repetitive, we get to be better humans. We get to, we get to believe, value, and, and pull from each other those things that are less robotic, less mechanical, and kind of at a, in this, in, in this nomenclature, right, like higher level. But it starts getting scarier, right? In this, the second phase of, of this AI, the robots aren't just now directed at a specific task. They're actually trained. They're almost like like a horse or an animal that you can guide, but it has almost a sense of independence. We'd probably describe those as servant AI. And in that world, which I'm saying is happening in kind of a 40-year period from now, all of a sudden the human's relationship to the AI changes, and they're not just guiding AI at a problem, but they're sort of training AI like a child, right? And what this starts to reveal is one of the, I think, the elements of humanity that we often kind of forget about and think about just in the past, in, in, in just in how, like, how work has transformed humanity in general. There's this thought experiment that sometimes people give that I just want to frame, I won't dive into too much, but there's this idea that we often think of ourselves right now as more ethical than our medieval past, right? Humanity has gotten much better. We are better at gender equality. We don't have slavery in the same way that we used to have in the past. We have these ideas of universal health care. We're just better people now, right, than, than people, human beings in the past. But there's a, there's a thought experiment that a lot of people believe that it's actually not that we became better, but that technology and the rise in wealth because of technology has allowed us to become better. We can eradicate slavery because we can use machines in, in farms and feed ourselves, and so all of a sudden we don't have to do those things which were unethical in the past. When you think that way, it's important to think today, what are all the things that we do today that we just accept as norms, which will be considered hugely unethical in the future, and that we can eradicate because of technology. It's kind of sad because it says that it's technology that led, not ethics that led, but it's still positive in the idea that we will be able to be much more ethical human beings if we can address 
an, a, a, this deficit that we have in terms of our needs. And so in this last this phase before, before singularity, before sentience in, 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 in AI, we have this amazing opportunity, something that's never happened in the history of human, human beings. We can finally fulfill the deficit that we've had in needs that human beings have had since the very beginning of, of our existence on the Earth. That deficit is why this difficult problem that we often talk about, right? We, we often ask ourselves this question right now. How come with all this automation that we have today in 2018, we're still working 40-hour work weeks and we feel exhausted and working harder than ever before? The answer to that is we've never crossed the deficit. But with servant AI, we will be able to, right? Food will become free, healthcare will become free, and all of a sudden now our base needs will be completely zero value in terms of you won't have to pay for them anymore. All of a sudden, we can be this new level of human being that's no longer trying to address base needs. We can address these kind of higher level needs. But I don't know if we exactly know what that looks like. We have to start thinking of what are our higher level notions of fulfillment in order to figure out what we will be as human beings and value in each other. And this is all very scary. And I think, it's, I think the part that we often forget is how quickly this is going to happen. But then the last part of my talk, and I just wanted to spend like a last piece of it, but I won't be able to give you as many answers, is that all of this kind of disappears at the last stage of AI. Right? As long as the robot is our servant, we can kind of ask it to do whatever we want. Um, and we'll be able to basically constantly strip ourselves from our needs by giving, basically handing off this work to technology. But everything changes when the technology becomes a person. And so I don't know if we know what the future of work looks like in this last phase. What happens when we're no longer refining humanity by removing the mechanical aspects of ourselves and constantly becoming better and better humans, all of a sudden that thing which was stripping off the parts of humanity that we didn't want to do anymore becomes in itself human, and now our relationship with it isn't handing off tasks like a servant, but all of a sudden we have to ask the question, what are its needs? Because to think of the future of jobs, we have to think of addressing needs, and all of a sudden now there's another conscious entity which has needs that none of us, I think, truly understand right now. And so the last piece I kind of wanted to touch on in that light was, I think, the thing that's the most scary for me, right? The thing I actually find the scariest, beyond the fact that we're probably, there's very unlikely that we're ever going to get to the stage because we're most likely going to kill ourselves with AI before we ever get to, the, to this amazing utopia, um, but we'll talk about that later. Um, if we ever get to this point, the thing that I always found the most scary is that capitalism doesn't breed the right world in which technology will be able to solve the biggest problems for humanity because right now we live in a world where very few very rich people control the strings of what the direction robotics and AI will take right now. That's just the reality of the world we live in right now. But the part that's positive for me is that capitalism really is a construct to address the fact that we all have this need deficit. If the need deficit goes away, we don't have to strip the power from those rich overlords that control the robots. Their currency will actually become worth nothing because the currency is just a, a valuing measure for labor that we will no longer value. And so there's an opportunity for us actually to create a post-capitalist world, not by revolting against our capitalist uh, like one percenters, but basically by just devaluing their currency completely and saying, you, I don't, food costs nothing, I don't, your money is worth nothing to us, right? And so we have this op opportunity to have a post-capitalist world because labor kind of gets wiped away where labor is defined as mechanical work. But I still don't know what happens, and I don't think any of us knows what happens when the computer becomes a person. And so let's do a quick recap of the, kind of the three concepts. Um, and so the first piece, 
I think that I, I wanted to leave you with was this idea that jobs aren't going away. As long as we value things in each other and ourselves, we will always have jobs. There's this opportunity for us to make jobs better than they ever were before. You'll see this even today. If you actually look at a graph of like the number of microbreweries in North America or independent coffee shops in North America, it's just this incredible curve. We can build these things where there's this human relationship with people. The coffee shop isn't about creating the best cup of coffee necessarily. It's about the ability to address these other human needs that we can have when we have enough wealth to be able to entertain ourselves with those things. And so jobs aren't going away, and don't accept it when people say that. The second thing I wanted to leave you with is this idea that in these kinds of phases of robotics, there's actually a redefining of humanity. And so every time the robot is able to do a lower level task that a human used to do, we get to become better humans by emphasizing the more human aspects of ourselves. And so we'll have to constantly ask ourselves, what does it mean to be human? Right now, I think we're all stuck in this mode that the amazing thing that humans can do is this kind of high-level cognitive task that's about empathy and, um, and emotion. And it's, it's beyond pattern matching, because we finally, I think, decided that AI can do that better than us. But at some point in time, even those things will get stripped from us. And, but that doesn't mean that we're no longer value. We have to keep asking ourselves, what is awesome about being human when, when we have to keep taking away things and figuring out what's left behind? And that's a massive opportunity for us, but I think very scary. And then the last thought I wanted to leave you with is, all of this is interesting. The stripping away of the base aspects of valuing humans so we can become better humans happens in cycles, and we get better and better and better. We address all human needs. And then everything falls off a cliff the moment the, the, the computer becomes sentient. Because we're no longer removing humanity and delegating it to something else. We actually have created a person. And now it has needs and rights and obligations. And I don't know if we know what that world looks like. And I'm not sure what jobs look like in that world either. That's what I wanted to talk about today. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. That was awesome. <laughs> I don't think we have, t do we have time for questions right now, team? No, I don't think we do. We're gonna take some questions from you later. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. So Ali, I love the presentation. I particularly love the idea that as AI develops, it's going to actually force humans to rethink what makes us human, right? Fascinating, fascinating topic. So thanks so much for a great presentation. OK, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We've heard from a number of entrepreneurs uh, and people who've built businesses and are, are building businesses around AI and machine learning. We're going to switch gears, and we're going to talk to someone on the academic side. And I'm really excited uh, in this presentation to get a bit, bit of a different perspective. Uh, so I want to introduce Marcel O'Gorman. He's a university research chair and director of the Critical Media Lab at the University of Waterloo. Essentially, his academic work uh, is about exploring the impacts of technology on the human condition. So I was just joking with him backstage that he's not chosen a small topic. Uh, I asked him backstage, is he a, an optimist or a pessimist about the future? And I loved his answer. He said, I'm neither. I'm a realist and I focus on evidence, and I think that we should slow down and be more thoughtful about the future. So I thought that was a great answer. So he's here to discuss uh, why we should take a multidisciplinary approach to AI that will both sustain people and the planet. Please welcome Marcel O'Gorman. Thank you. Um, 
I initially wanted to call this talk, well, first of all, I want to thank people for inviting me here. I'm an English professor. What am I doing here? Someone made a mistake, right? Uh, I hope not. I originally wanted to call this talk in defense of uselessness, but I thought no one will come to that talk probably, and uh, actually I was ordered to give a talk about AI and ethics by Ian Klugman, and I don't want to piss him off, so, so AI and ethics. All right, I'm going to start with a little tone setter here. This is from the uh, French philosopher Jacques Ellul from the Technological Society. 1954, he wrote, in such a state in a technological society, nothing useless exists. So you're gonna hear a lot about uselessness today and uh, just put a bookmark on this, it's gonna come in useful later on. So in 1952, while computer scientist uh, Marvin Minsky was working at Bell Labs, you've probably heard of Marvin Minsky, he came up with the idea for what he called the ultimate machine. How many of you have heard of this thing before? The ultimate machine? It's just a box with a button on top, and you flip the switch, and this little appendage comes out and flips it back off, and that's, that's all it does. He came up with the idea. Claude Shannon, another superstar of computer science, saw this thing. He was like, dude, that's awesome. Claude Shannon didn't say that. Uh, he said, I'm going to make one of these. So Claude Shannon made one of these, and, and here it is. And today, you can buy one on Amazon, the useless box kit, because in a, such a society, everything's useful if you can sell it. So the useless box kit, here it is. I buy tons of these, and I use them in the critical media lab, actually, to teach English majors how to solder and how to think with machines, how to think with machines, which usually requires hacking them. So here's one in action. I'm going to go back to that slide. It's supposed to be playing this for me. There we go. There's the useless machine in action. That's all it does. That's where it gets fun, okay. What's interesting, Arthur C. Clarke used to hang around Bell Labs, uh, he's a science fiction writer. And when he saw this useless machine on Claude Shannon's desk, he, said, he wrote in his journal, the psychological effect, if you do not know what to expect, is devastating. There is something unspeakably sinister about a machine that does nothing, absolutely nothing, except switch itself off. It's a famous quote, it's on Wikipedia now, I found out. It's kind of weird because when Clark wrote this, there were a lot of machines that switched themselves off. Okay, Norbert Wiener, in his famous uh, 1948 book on cybernetics, had written about the bimetal thermostat, which is basically a small machine that turns another machine off, and the steam governor, which is the kind of the, the idea behind negative feedback that powers cybernetics. These are machines of their own agency. They shut themselves off when they're supposed to. But for some reason, Clark was taken by this ultimate box. It's different. In fact, it's not useless at all. It's actually useful as a prototype. The ultimate box, or the useless box, capture Arthur C. Clark's fears about a world in which machines have agency, autonomy, and a stubborn will of their own. So you can guess where I'm headed with this. To prototype for artificial intelligence, which is the field that Marvin Minsky pioneered. I want to linger a little bit on this concept of uselessness before I get too deep into deep learning. So what turns out, it's a little bit ironic, what Minsky and Shannon were doing at Bell Labs when they made this useless box is exactly what they were supposed to be doing. Bell Labs has long supported useless research. Some people call it pure research. But this is, this is speculative research, and it's what they're supposed to be doing. It turns out to be very fruitful. Bell Labs has produced the transistor, the laser, Unix operating system, 
C++ based on people who are just given free reign to do research from a number of different disciplines. It's not a unique idea. In 1939, Abraham Flexner wrote this piece for the Harper's Magazine called The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. And Flexner talks about the importance of bringing in different kinds of knowledge that aren't immediately applicable to things, that aren't immediately profit-driven, for example. Flexner wrote, I sometimes wonder whether there would be sufficient opportunity for a full life if the world were emptied of some of the useless things that give it spiritual significance. In other words, whether our conception of what is useful may not have become too narrow to be adequate to the roaming and capricious possibilities of the human spirit. That's 1939. One of the problems with pure research, I think you just heard a little bit about this previously, is we don't always know where it's going, where it's going to lead. And this becomes obvious when you look at who became the director of this institute uh, at Princeton from 1947 to 1966, this guy, J. Robert Oppenheimer. So you might know him as a key contributor to the Manhattan Project. When Flexner wrote his Ode to Uselessness in 1939, he couldn't have known that six years later, Oppenheimer's speculative experiments trying to turn bar uh, convert barium into uranium would lead to the mass destruction at Hiroshima and Nagasaki only six years later. Flexner couldn't have known that. This idea of uselessness has been taken up, this essay by Flexner was taken up recently by Italian scholar and philosopher Nuccio Ordine. His book, The, uselessness, uh, the Usefulness of the Useless, praises not only peer research in science, but peer research in other fields as well, research in, in arts and humanities that are reflective fields, fields that promote critical thinking, slow thinking, so philosophy, history, literary studies. What Ordinary makes clear is that a useless science experiment, or a useless piece of code for that matter, is not the same as a useless poem. There are different things at stake. It's hard to think anyway of anything useless, any useless tech or science experiment, because all tech and science experiments are tied one way or another to profit. It's just the way that it works. It's capitalism, as we've, as we've heard. It's how it works. Profit, although I should say it's not just tied to profit, more recently it's tied to a very narrow understanding of innovation. Poetry and philosophy are not tied to this. That's why poets are poor, usually. So are philosophers. Ordinary is concerned that today's utilitarian society, a society driven by innovation, which ultimately means commercialization and profit, has made unprofitable forms of knowledge useless. He wrote, in the, in the universe of utilitarianism, a hammer is worth more than a symphony, a knife more than a poem, and a monkey wrench more than a painting. He said that the art's very immunity to any aspiration to make profit, that sounds sad, could set it up per se as a form of resistance to the selfishness of the present, as an antidote to the barbarism of profit that has gone so far as to corrupt our social relations and our most intimate affections. That's not exactly optimism or realism, but he's getting his point across. Okay, so what about AI and ethics? You came here for a talk on AI and ethics. Where, where is the AI and ethics? So I have another useless box here, and hopefully this will play automatically. So this is a useless box made by, a, call him an art hacker, who goes by the name of Outta Space Man. This is on his YouTube channel. And it's basically an Arduino microcontroller inside a box with a little servo attached to this pink tentacle. And when you turn it on, well, you'll see what happens. Eventually. 
It's a longer video than I thought it was. Nothing happened. It's useless. There we go. Okay. So you turn it on, but you can't turn it off. So when we think of nightmare scenarios about AI, this is generally what people think about. A killing machine that we can't turn off, like the Terminator. Uh, a basic understanding of AI should dispel some of those fears. So I'm an English professor. Here's how I understand AI. I think about it in two different ways. Narrow AI, which has a simple utility function. It's a startup out of Velocity in Waterloo uh, named Imagine. And they basically use uh, AI to help predict and control water use in municipal water systems. Very simple, right? Another narrow AI, it's a project that we did in my lab called TeetTweet, which basically takes data produced at a robotic dairy farm, integrates it into live tweets from cows so that they can deliver the message of cows to the masses. And that's a narrow, a simple utility function. A little bit useless. Um, so strong AI is something different. Strong AI, basically, you can imagine an AI that exceeds human intelligence, that has some form of autonomy even, some form of agency. It's more general. It's a general utility function. And we have these nightmare scenarios, science fiction, Westworld, and uh, Black Mirror, but we don't have to turn to these to come up with potential you know, dangers of AI. And in fact, doing this might actually be the wrong thing to do. There are early indicators of where AI could go bad, and we have to think about these and pay attention to them. Microsoft's Tay. Heard of this? Twitter bot Tay. Microsoft invented this Twitter bot, unleashed it to the world. Within a day, this Twitter bot became a racist, misogynistic Hitler lover. That tells you something about well, what I'm going to talk about in a minute. Tells you something about the ethos of the internet, and I'm going to come back to that. Maybe more, more importantly, I would say right now, is AI weaponry. AI weaponry, which is threatening to start a new global arms race of autonomous machines that are basically given the responsibility of determining who should live and who should die. So we, we had another talk earlier about, you know, technology is, is neutral, it's uh, what we do with it that matters. We want to think a little bit harder about that. Okay, so I've covered the AI part of this. So now what about the ethics? Give us the ethics. Everybody wants the ethics, but I'm not going to give you the ethics. I don't want to give you the ethics because all too often, Ethics don't do what we think they're going to do. The problem with them is they can be too easily be used as a way of hiding motives or excusing behaviors. Ethics as they are commonly understood is something you tack on to a project at the end to make sure it's socially acceptable. Ethics is a checkbox that someone fills out in an office far away from the engineering, design, and marketing teams. As a matter of fact, ethics in the tech community might be considered completely useless except that they can get in the way of innovation. So you have to attend to them, and maybe that's a good thing. So rather than talking about ethics, I want to talk about this word that I introduced a minute ago, ethos. Ethos is not, well, it is. It's a brand of water you can buy at Starbucks. But I even use the same font accidentally, but I want you to ignore that. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing about the ethos of bottled water that I want to talk about today. Ethos, you may not have heard of it because it comes from such useless subjects as rhetoric and philosophy. A good rhetorician has a good ethos. I'm going to get to the word good in a minute, too. 
Ethos defines the characteristic spirit of a culture, era, or community is manifested in its attitudes and aspirations. Ethos determines why someone is motivated to develop technology in the first place. What's your ethotic stance? What is your ethos? What's a person's attitudes and aspirations? Are they guided by profit, by utility, by a single-minded pursuit of innovation for the sake of innovation? Are they guided by other motives that exceed the boundaries of the tech community? More to the point, what is the ethos of a person or community that wants to develop a form of intelligence that exceeds human intelligence? What are the guiding motives there? That's what's always hidden. It's what we don't attend to very much when we're looking at technological development. Shifting gears a bit here, in the May 14th issue of The New Yorker, not too long ago, staff writer Tad Freen wrote a pretty good long article. It surveys a lot of AI writers, uh, writers about AI. And he, talk, he quotes chess master Gary Kasparov. Kasparov still feeling a little bit, a little bit of sour grapes after Big Blue. But no, Kasparov actually, he gets, he gets very positive about AI. He says, using AI for the more menial aspects of reasoning will free us, elevating our cognition toward creativity, curiosity, beauty, and joy. It's a very positive message. I'd like to think it's true. The problem with this, with thinking about the future, with this liberating, it's going to liberate our cognition to do these things, is that in the process, we're in danger of losing our ability to understand or appreciate or value these very things. Forms of curiosity, creativity, beauty, and joy. Why? Because we've become accustomed to view them as useless, because they fall outside the parameters of what we see as useful. If you really want to achieve general AI, I'm going to tell you the secret. Here today, any AI scientist will tell you the secret to achieve general AI. The secret is to make a machine that exceeds the intelligence of humans, make humans that think more like machines, and that's going to solve the problem. If you promote an ethos that asks humans to ignore extremely complex but seemingly useless things like philosophy, art, literature, or social justice, things that are very hard to program into machines, then we'll take a giant leap toward achieving general AI. Just got to get rid of those things. But what would be the cost? Rather than leaping forward all the time, we might want to stop and actually look around us a little bit. I mean even literally, well maybe, well you can look around this room, but even just geographically in this region, look around us. From South Kitchener, where there's the Grand Valley Institute, a women's prison, where a ton of social justice initiatives are underway, so there's a community justice initiative here in Kitchener-Waterloo doing amazing things there. From there, the south, to North Waterloo, where you have Mennonite communities living without technology. And they're doing that to preserve community. They're doing that because they have some concerns. It's worth looking at that and thinking about that and why they're doing that and what they're achieving through that. And think about the charities that they give to. They just raised thousands of dollars last week by selling quilts, of all things. All right. Keep in mind that all of this land from north to south is an indigenous on indigenous land, land that was actually promised to indigenous peoples. Thinking about these things will help develop an ethos. This is just a, I'm kind of lighting it up. So this cartoon was in, in sandwiched in that AI article. I couldn't believe it. I was like, yeah, it's, it's not personal. The boss just doesn't like seeing people in so much debt for a useless degree. <laughs> 
All right. There's a lot of talk about transforming Waterloo Region. Maybe you don't talk about it. I think it's getting old into a Silicon Valley north. You've probably heard this before. That, is that what we really want? Uh, a Palo Alto pastor, this guy right here, Gregory Stevens, recently quit his job in Palo Alto as a, as a pastor because, well, I'll put it in his words, I believe Palo Alto is a ghetto of wealth, power, and elitist liberalism by proxy, meaning that many community members claim to want to fight for social justice, but that desire doesn't translate into action. This is the problem with putting an ethics poster on the wall but not actually having the ethos to carry out those promises. Like the word useless, the word good is entirely subjective. It changes from person to person, community to community. It's a very old question. What is good? What is the meaning of good? You know, Plato, Socrates, uh, Aristotle, these people all ask this question. It's a very slow question. But I would say, if you're not thinking really carefully, capaciously, generously, about it means to do good. Even if you're making good tech products, I would say that those products are useless. In the words of Socrates, the unexamined life, not wife, life is not worth living. I'm not going to examine anyone's wife here, I promise. So the question of what is good is this ancient question, but it helps us develop an ethos. Asking those questions, those ancient questions, seemingly useless philosophical questions, is exactly what develops an ethos. Asking questions like, who is left out? Who is in need? What are the consequences, social, psychological, environmental, of the products that I'm creating? Asking these questions could develop an ethos that would be something we could say is tech for good. So what does this mean for the Waterloo region? I promised Ian I'd be positive and I'd build a bridge. It means we have an amazing opportunity. We've got Palo Alto over there, you know, this slum hole cesspool. There's probably people here from there right now. <laughs> I hope so. I'm just kidding. I know it's not all bad. But we don't have to be like Silicon Valley. We don't have to. We can be better. We can be good, but that requires developing an ethos that thinks outside of the tech community. We have to think outside of the tech community to the broader community and the world. So it's time to introduce, this is my, this is my recipe, introduce some useless thinking, not just into AI research, but into the tech community more generally. I'm talking about slow, critical, and reflective thinking that should be introduced not as an add-on, not as an afterthought or a widget, but actually introduced at the research and development stage of production. So I'm not talking about developing an ethics in the tech community. I'm talking about shaping the ethos of that community, an ethos that community can be proud of, that other communities, whether they're tech communities or not, will look at the tech community and say, wow, that's a really good community. That should be our goal. Thank you. Marcel, thank you so much. That was amazing. Did he say he was an English professor? <laughs> Only here in Waterloo would the, <laughs> would the English professors be so fascinating. So that was amazing. Thanks so much. I had to listen to that two or three times, but I, I, wish, I, uh, I wish I went to Waterloo because that was amazing.
Okay, um, I want to keep moving on. We've got uh, two more speakers. So uh, our next uh, speaker is the founder and CEO of Neuro, and I want to say a little bit about him. He's a pretty amazing guy. I've been speaking to him backstage. He brings more than 20 years of expertise as an entrepreneur, a big data scientist, and a designer of human-computer interaction in the fields of applied neuroscience and neurotechnology. This guy is seriously fascinating. What I find most interesting about him is he's working on an incredibly noble mission, okay? And I'm going to let him tell you more about it, but essentially, he's helping incapacitated patients communicating, communicate through technology, through sending neurological signals. So it's totally a noble mission, and I'm really glad we have this segment. So please welcome Francois Gand. There are millions of individuals whose lives have been shattered, either due to a sudden accident or an unfortunate illness. Many of them have lost the ability to communicate, either temporarily or permanently. My name is Francois Yam, and I am trying to resolve this with our team. The largest population group that we define as being touchless and voiceless are stroke patients. Those individuals have aphasia, or the inability to communicate or speak adequately, and that population is growing. There are 17 million new first-time strokes that will happen this year worldwide. That's a new stroke every two seconds. We define 33% of those people need some help. At Neuro, we've realized that certain neurological signals from the frontal part of the human head we're allowing us to communicate and control a computer system. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Henry Evans. Henry is a TEDx speaker and a past CFO in Silicon Valley. But at 40 years of age, he was hit by a stroke and became paralyzed and mute. Let me show you very briefly what we do when we met Henry last month. Alexa, hi. Hi there. What we've done in this very short clip is take the neurological signal live from this individual fully independently without training or calibration and add him interact in such a way that those neurological signals were captured and give us certain signatures. And those signatures give us insights and trends as to what this individual is about. Data that really we've never had the ability to obtain prior. And regardless as to how you manage that data, you can associate it via different type of machine learning models and fundamentally look at objects, so to speak, that are telling us more about that individuals. What if we could use those neurological signals in cases such as PTSD? What if we could define certain actions to take prior to some dramatic consequences? We have reached a point now where technology is just no longer a single input device. It is a bi-directional tool that we can utilize 
for us to learn more about a larger part of the population. And fundamentally, in terms of healthcare, are we going to have AI ultimately dominate and make decisions for us? Will the doctor become blurred in this ecosystem? If we do want precision medicine, if we are all waiting for the right type of medicine to cure us, are we going to be trusting this artificial intelligence? Ultimately, the amount of information that we're going to be collecting could be extremely useful. However, if you look, for instance, in Europe at the GDPR that has just taken place a few days ago, that AI may no longer be there if your life is in danger and AI requires it. I'm going to leave you with a positive note where, ultimately, in the case of a stroke patient, you may go to a point where life is meaningless. But what if we could change that? Go to Alexa, the first one, to get to the music, number one. Alexa, play some top 40. Top 40 from Spotify. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Sending emergency messages. <laughs> wow. Can we define this as tech for good? Are we affecting these individuals who technically is mute and paralyzed and now has the ability to, as a human being, talk to an AI system which itself talks to another AI system and comes back with positive messaging? My name is Francois Guin. I'm the founder and CEO of Neuro. I thank you very much. I am available afterwards if you have any questions. Have a great conference. Thank you. Francois, thank you so much. That was really inspirational. So I apologize. I manufactured an extra speaker. In fact, that was our last speaker. So I just want to have a big round of applause for all the speakers here today. And I'd really like to take a moment to thank our major sponsors, CN, The Globe, Perimeter Institute, and Shopify. And I really want to stress again that these amazing events don't happen without people at these organizations and the others out on the big wall that take risks. So I want to thank everyone for doing that. Um, the thought I'm left with today after uh, talking to the folks backstage and watching these amaz amazing presentations is really one of optimism. I have to say, it's amazing to talk to these people and see how thoughtful they're being about these technologies, about their opportunities, but also their risks. So I'm left with an amazing sense of optimism. I want to thank Communitech for that. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining. I'm going to say that the next session on stage B will start in 30 minutes, and it's going to be focused on digital red tape. Sounds fascinating. And the intersection between technology and public institutions. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon.